I'd like you to open your Bible to Psalms 101, verse 2. We'll just mention that, and then we'll go on. Psalms 101 and verse 2 says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Not many do, not many try to. Everybody will amen that because they go to church where people amen. But how many people really do walk in their house with a blameless or an upright heart? I don't know. I don't think there's a lot. But there's no reason that I can think of tonight. If you're a Christian, there's no reason that you can't. If you're a man or a woman, there's no reason that you cannot because everything you need to be what God wants you to be has been given to you. It's all in this book. It's given to us by that illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of these words is to make you into the kind of person God wants you to be. And you always do that by faith. You have to believe what he said is true, and faith is an act. You begin acting like the book is true, like the statements are true. And you know you can't act the way you used to act if you're acting by faith because that's not what he wants. And so you begin changing your life because you're believing what God said and what he requires of you. You live that way. This is a blameless heart that God wants. We're talking about the Christian home. We ended last week talking about men. And we introduced that by looking at Deuteronomy 24, 5, where it says that if a man has taken a new wife, he is not to be charged with bills or go to war for a year. And he is free at home to cheer up his wife. It, it doesn't say he is free from work because he still is required to support her and, and all of those things. But he will not be shackled with bills, things that upset couples and things that sometimes they fight over. Well, it's your fault. You charge it. And so you're free from all of that for one year for the man to cheer up his wife, to cheer her up, to gladden her, to make her happy. That's a man's job. I heard a man say years ago, he can tell by looking at a couple how well the man is doing in that department. If his wife is a gloomy person, then there's something that needs to be done that a husband can do because God says he can. But this should bring itself as a testimony into the church from out of the home, that we are a cheerful bunch of people, that we are a joyful and a glad-hearted bunch of people. And we are that way because... It works at home for us, and we brought it from our homes into the building, into the meeting. And so that's, again, that's what we are anyway. We've already said that, that we are a bunch of homes represented here tonight. Couples are supposed to cleave to each other. That time, one year from freedom from bills and things you argue about or get stressed out or tension over in a home is a good time to bond together and to learn to adjust to each other. I am sure that a lot of... Young girls have grown up or young men have grown up, especially young girls here to cheer her up, had grown up with maybe in a family that was well-to-do and she had much of whatever she wanted and then she marries somebody that she really loves and, but doesn't have anything and the beginning of their home is way below what she used to have. And she can't go all the places and wear and buy all the clothes and all the things that mom and dad gave her because now she is made a decision, her father approved of it, to marry this young man, and he took her from that and brought her to the house that they're going to establish together and make a home out of, and it's not always easy for her because she has to restrain and restrict herself, and she can get gloomy about that. Not many do. Maybe some do, but his job is to cheer her up. And you do a lot of that, I believe, with communication. You talk about, look, the, the thing that's important in life is you and I are together, and then you build off of that because it should be like that. And if it takes things or money to make your home happy, then the home is not on the right footing. Money makes nobody happy. It is at best, at its very, very best, money is a temporary fix. I'll tell you how bad it is. When you die, you're broke. When you're laying in that overpriced box, you are broke you have in that box what you came into this world with you have nothing and from the dust you came and from the dust you're going back and your family's getting all that money you worried about but god wants us to be the kind of people that he can trust 
the kind of people that are faithful to his word that try to live it. We've looked at Abraham. God says, I know Abraham, Genesis 18 and 19. He says, for I know him that he will command his family, his children and his whole family after him to do justice and righteousness. He said, I know that he will do that and he'll keep my law. And he ended that verse by saying, so that I may bring upon him all the things that I have promised. If you turn that around, if you want to take a serious look at it, the reason a lot of homes are not blessed like you hear about all the time, that those blessings don't come into your home, it can go back to the kind of man you married or the kind of man, if you are a man, the kind of man that you have been in your home. You got to be in charge. God holds men to that responsibility. He can't be in charge if his wife won't let him. And you know that. And if she does and there's a conflict there, you should have had a longer courtship than you did because chances are it would have been better if you hadn't married. So let me look at three functions to begin with tonight, speaking of men, three functions of men. We want men to be Abrahams. We want men to be like Joshua who was able to say, as for me and my house, we will. They will too. Or we want men to be like Noah. Noah and his home followed him. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he was a righteous man in all his house. I mean, he brought it to the home and the home got it and he stands before his home answerable to God and he gets a pleasant amen because this is what God wants. This is what God wants from men to be able to most of all to look at his family, his wife and family and they're all saved, they're all living right, they're all obedient. Now when I say all obedient, I don't mean your wife is to be your daughter but everybody is following the Lord as you have brought it to them. This is the way God wants a home to be. A Christian home is a home where Christ is rightly represented and rightly seen. And it's the man who should be the one who starts that. We've mentioned last week that a man should rule. And that's the first point I wanna to make in beginning tonight, the three functions of men and husbands. Number one is that men are supposed to rule. And by rule, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 speaks of those who want to lead in the church. They be those who ruleth at home. Ruleth is a word which means to stand before, to stand in front of. We would understand it as one who takes the responsibility not only to answer for his family, but to his family. He makes sure that things are run the way they should be, that people are doing what they're supposed to do. He's like a Sunday school superintendent who makes sure that all the teachers have their materials, that every classroom is ready, that all the things need to be done before church, before Sunday school. Everything is in place, all the materials and supplies. He gets there ahead of time, makes sure everybody is ready to go when it's time to start Sunday school. Now, I did Sunday school class when I was in a Christian church, and I was the assistant superintendent of the Sunday school classes. So you know that's a lot of title right there. But the whole purpose of the person was, and it's a picture in the Bible of what it means to oversee. You make sure things are run properly. A pastor does that. I can tell nobody what to do. I can rule nobody. I can't make anybody do anything. I can't make my children do anything. In fact, in the Bible, if you tried to make them do it and they would not do it, you took them to the gate and you stoned them to death. That's the way it worked. You make the rules, they don't wanna follow me. You discipline, they break that and they don't wanna mind. You just took them to the elders of the gate. This is our son and then you tell them what it is and we tried and he won't do it and phew, he's dead. Uh, we couldn't do that in America today, could we? But it would make a lot of kids think about before they sass their parents or disobey it and wouldn't make them think. If I want to live, I better straighten up and fly right here. But this is the way it was supposed to be and that's the way God wanted. But a man is supposed to rule. He doesn't rule by force. He doesn't try to intimidate. He's not so insecure that he has to make his family mine and he's always on the edge and half angry because when you submit to an angry man, it's not because you respect him. It's not because you love them so much, it's just the consequences that if you don't, man, you're gonna get hurt. Because this guy, you know, he's unreasonable. And a lot of men are like that. I know a man like that who became a pastor of a church and 
he wasn't obsessed with ruling, but he liked to rule. He liked to tell people what to do and when to come and when to go. And that's not the way it should be. People should do it because they trust you, because they believe God would have them do this. You rule by consent. It's just like in a home. A man does not rule his wife like she is his daughter and she better. He rules by consent. She respects him. She should. They don't much, not a lot of that today either, but she should respect him, what he stands for, what God holds him accountable for. She wants to be a part of that, cooperate with that, and make sure that that happens in her family. So she submits to her husband, and she honors him by doing that. That's the way it's supposed to be. But there's such a selfishness in the attitude of so many people today that, you know, I want mine. It ain't fair. And I'll tell you one thing, and they've listened to so many people down at the gossip shops, talk to so many people on the phone or watch way too many movies where they talk like that, and then they bring that in the house and they bring disorder in the home. You can't have divine order in any home in which the man in that house is not overseeing that house with the consent of his family. That's the way it has to be. The second thing a man should do and is responsible to do is to teach. It's his job to read the stories to the children. If you try to wait till they're 18 to sit down on the couch with them, you probably waited too long. But when you bring children into the world, into a family, most people do, but when children come into the family, they are gifts from the Lord. God holds a mother and a father, and in this case, a father especially accountable for these children to be godly seed. They were not given to you to be meat for the world and to enhance the world and be judged along with the rest of the world. But God gave children to us so that we might train them in the way that he shows us to train them, that they might grow up and be godly seed or become citizens in God's kingdom. That when they're old enough to understand convictions, they will follow their convictions. Not only because of what they have heard their father teach them and say, but because of what they've seen and how important God is to their parents. And the difference that God has made in their parents is they've looked at other parents that their friends have or at school. And they're really glad that their parents are God-like people who are fair and honest and upright with their children. But it's a dad's job to teach. Now turn to Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 18. Here's a message for fathers, and it mentions three specific things here. One, in verse 18, therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontless between your eyes. Now let's translate that into a New Testament understanding. You shall take as the guide and the authority in your life, the word of God, which God honors and which God performs. You shall live by the word. You shall know what is right and what is wrong by what the word of God says. That's the right thing that is called truth. That's the only thing, the only book, the only writings anywhere that God said he watches over to perform. Now this man who is following Christ a godly man. He reads it and he says, I cannot teach something that I don't know. I cannot teach my children the ways of God if I don't know them myself. I cannot explain to my children why God would say things if I don't know myself. So a man's first job is to make sure that he knows what the Lord says and what is in the Bible himself. Now, I don't know how many of us ever qualified there. You that are in the church now and you're young, you can't. When I came to the Lord, I wasn't saved. My parents weren't saved. I don't remember anybody ever doing this to me. There was never any importance attached to the word of God when I was growing up. The only teaching I got from my parents that I can understand are the ways of life. I can't even talk about it here, but they just said a lot of things to me about what not to do in life and what to watch out for in life. But I never heard anything about the Lord. Nobody ever talked about Jesus. The Bible was never mentioned because nobody knew anything about it. Nobody ever read it. I don't know if we even had one. I think my dad had a Bible. It was just never important. So I grew up 
realizing that. But for me, there was some reason, this was the election, I guess. But for me, I knew there was always something there. But I didn't know what it was. I would hear about it in church and I'd think about it. But I never saw it at home. My dad was supposed to be a teacher in our home. I'm supposed to be a teacher in my house. You young men with children now, you're supposed to teach your children too. But you can't teach them what you don't know. And one thing young people pick up on today as much as anything is hypocrisy. If your child sees you watching women walk down the street and look at this and look at that one, I mean, they watch. Or you're pumping gas and you're looking over at that girl over there. Or you got a magazine, uh, used to be outdoor type magazines were pretty clean. And then I canceled my subscription because of some of the advertisement in the back. So the kid sees his dad in the back of that magazine every evening on advertisement. So one day the kid looks at that and his dad says, hey, quit reading that. You're not supposed to read that. And the kid says, you do. You do. The mom tells the daughter, you shouldn't wear that. And she says, you do. We shouldn't talk like that. You did when I was with you downtown the other day and you said that bad word. Well, that's where I got it. You can't teach as a way of life the right things if you don't live the right things. Now, I don't know how many kids ever talk to each other about it, but I think a lot of kids talk to somebody about why they don't want to go to church anymore and why they don't believe in all this stuff. And I think a lot of times it goes back to the fact that parents are hypocrites or they go to the church and they talk a good game, but they don't live it. And in that sense, a father has done damage, perhaps eternal damage, to something that God gave him as a requirement to raise in a godly seed. You have to give an account for your children. I do. You're going to bring a lot of them in the world. You've got a lot of chores. You've got a lot of things to do there about these children. But in verse 18, he said, you lay these words up in your heart. If they're not in your heart, don't expect them to be in your child's heart. Verse 19, and you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Now, I don't know when it says last down that your kids are all in bed with you tonight. Maybe they did that then, or maybe the rooms were small, and they were all in the room, and they talked about the Lord until they went to sleep. I don't know. I just know that translate that into what it's saying to us. It means that we are to not only learn the ways of God, but we are to teach those ways to our children all the time when we sit down at home. I don't mean we just like a walking Bible. Okay, children, we got five minutes here All right now. Turn to John chapter 6. No, I just think that you talk about a lot of things. You'd ride around town. You take your children places. You go places together. They're little. They're growing up. They want to be with dad. He drives the truck, and they get this ride in the truck or the car, whatever, and, and they watch. They see what you do. They know how you're supposed to act, how, how you're supposed to treat traffic lights, and whether you're supposed to stop at stop signs. They know because they're watching. The teacher is instructing them in the way to go. And so as they go through life and they watch you do all of these kind of things, they're learning from you what they ought to do. But sometimes the father may be out with his kids, say, at the fair, and he sees some boys talking bad and acting real tough. And so he takes time say, now, you see those kids? I say, yeah. And I see, now, those kids are angry. They act angry. They may not be, but they act angry. They want to be tough and look bad, so you'll be scared of them. Now, God doesn't want us to be like that. We're to be loving and kind people. In that way, you are teaching biblical principles to your child as you see things in life while you ride along the way, walk along the way. Parents, have you know that children, by the time they're 15, will have asked you at least 2,000 questions a week. <laughs> and then when they get to be 15, they don't ask any more questions because they know it all. That's right. J.R. Britannica, we used to say that. And in verse 21, here's the reason. That your days may be multiplied. Let me ask you a question. What is the basis in this one passage of Scripture? God promises long life here. Long life to you and to your children wherever you live. 
And he does that so that your days on this earth can be like the days of heaven on earth or the days of heaven above the earth. What is the basis? Could I rightly say this tonight, that there is a way, a specific way that God has given us to live in just one little portion of scripture. There's a specific way that we can live that if we will, God will bless us like heaven on earth. We will live long. We won't need insurance for dying because we'll live long. God will take care of us. What's the basis for it? The word of God. A man reading it, living it, understanding it. And then secondly, a man turning around and teaching his sons and his daughters. And if necessary, in some cases, his wife, she may come in later. And God said he will so honor that kind of a effort from a man. And it doesn't say you're a perfect teacher, but you're trying. You're trying. And he said, if you do, your days will be multiplied. Does your Bible say that? Your days will be multiplied. He didn't say added. He said multiplied. I like that. Your days will be multiplied on this earth, you and your children. So these children you brought in the world have an advantage over many other people in the world because God honors his word. That's up to a father. Look in Ephesians, the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. Teaching here in the sense of instruction, verbally and physically. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And you fathers... Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up. Now, he said specifically fathers. You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, what does provoke not mean? Well, it means, actually, the word means to rage. It means don't cause your children to just be irritated. How would you do that? Teasing them all the time, calling them little sissies, little mama's boy. Going in a house to sit with your mama, you just belittling his mindset. The biggest person in a boy's life, a little boy's life, the biggest person in his life is his dad. And he had a chance to run around and hear the rest of them, but the one he hears all the time is his dad. The one he should respect the most is his dad. And the one he should aspire to be like when he's little, I want to be like my dad. That's the way it should be. But if a dad becomes an abusive, verbally abusive person, and the kid begins to realize that if I don't perform well for dad, he's going to put me down because he does it all the time. And when my friends come over and he calls me names, now they're calling me names too. And it can be like in Colossians 3 and verse 21, he said that you can become discouraged. A kid can become very angry and hate their father. I can't stand him. My dad wants me to do this or do that, but I can't stand him. Years ago, a brother and I were playing golf in Indiana, and there were two of us, just me and this guy, we were going to play. But the rules were that on that particular day, you had to play a foursome. There was only two of us, so we waited around, and here came a father and his son. So we were playing the fours. I didn't know him. We met each other, but we got to playing, and it wasn't after a couple of holes, and this father would not leave this boy alone. This kid was really nice, and I was, you know, just watching the kid, and this father would just say stuff. I told you to swing this way. What's the matter? Can't you understand anything? And I watched that little boy, and I'd see him just kind of, you know, he'd look over at us like, man, did you have to say that like that? He just made this kid feel real, real little. I imagine that this little boy doesn't want to play golf with his daddy anymore. I don't know whatever happened to him. But I can imagine a situation like that. This child would dread doing something with his dad, going fishing, Riding around, going to town with him or going on vacation because you can't make this man happy. This guy goes off to handle about anything in front of anybody. He uses words that shouldn't be used. I've heard kids call scumbags before by their father. That's not a good word. I mean, it's not a good thing for a kid to go to bed at night and lay his head on a pillow and to know that the most important person he was hoping, anyway, thought was the most important person in his life sees him as a scumbag. 
Now, I don't know if you can find that in the dictionary or not. But from the way his father said it, this child is not worth even being in his family. He's just no good. He's a scumbag. He's a dog. And if every time you try to fix something, you're trying to nail a nail, oh, you can't do nothing, and you take the hammer away and you do And all the child begins thinking of, I don't want to be around him. And he, his father, who does that, cannot nurture those children or admonish them in the Lord. See, the word nurture is the word paideia, a Greek word which has to do with instruction in the training of a child that there is a need for children to be trained because they grew up with the Adamic nature. They have to be saved, and a father is designed to speak words to them so that God can bring them under conviction later on in their life. And that's what a father does. He's to nurture his children, but he can't do it if he doesn't know how. And he can never make the excuse, well, nobody nurtured me. How would I know? That's not an excuse because you've got enough time to come to church as many times as we've had church. And as many hours in the last five years or 10 years or 20 years you've had to read the Bible and find out for yourself, you can't ignore what we're called to do and then just say, well, nobody did it to me. I don't know how to do it. You've got more than one chance to know how to do it. There is not a soul in this room that has a right to any excuse of blaming somebody else for problems in your life. We don't go around saying life isn't fair. That's not even an issue. God put us in this world just like we were. He called us out of darkness. We were all in darkness. We were dogs. We chased cars. We didn't know right from wrong. Some had it better. Some had it worse. We all learned to complain and gripe. And he puts us in here and begins to dismantle all that stuff so he can cleanse us all. Cleanse every one of us. So that when we start getting cleansed out, we don't blame people anymore. We don't pass a buck or look for somebody to to blame or I'm a victim, I'm a victim. You might have been, but you're not anymore. You're a child of the king now. You poor thing, you're a child of the king. You can be everything God wants you to be. All those ugly things you passed have gone away. All those feelings you had about your daddy, all those bitter things you felt about him, God's forgiven you of all of that. You can put all that behind you, not let the devil use it anymore, not let the devil drag you from this present back into your past and, and be bitter. You can get away from that, look straight ahead, learn a new way to live, and rise above all of that kind of stuff. And there's not very many people in this room that didn't have things in your past that, but you can rise above all of it. I doubt if anybody in this room has perfect parents or had perfect parents. I hope you do. I hope you do. This generation I'm in right now has been taught from the day they were born. If any generation here at the end has a chance to do it all right, you do. Now, whether you will or not depends upon you. But I know that from looking back in my life at all the men I have known and all the mistakes that I have seen and all the good things that I have seen, and sorting it out and trying to make the good things work in my own life. There's not a lot of men that have tried real hard to be godly men in their homes. We've relegated godliness to the walls in this building when we're all together. The preacher when he's preaching sermons and or the, the Christian leader when they're in amongst everybody else acting real spiritual. But what you are at home, as our text said, what you are at home is what your kids see. It's what your wife sees. That's what your conscience sees. And that's what you really are, what you are at home. But you're to provoke not your children. Those young minds are so impressionable. And they need somebody they can respect. Sometimes you have to tell your children, I made a mistake. You admonish children. And you discipline children. Sometimes you have to spank them. I mean, that's just the way it works. Sometimes you have to deal with things because they need to know that. A man takes his son. When he's big enough to go, he takes him with him. He goes to town with him. He wears ball cap like his daddy. or he, You know, that's just as natural. I want to be like daddy. Takes him to Walmart or takes him to the garage to get his oil changed. And the little boy watches his daddy talk to other people. Hey, how are you doing? He finds out how you're supposed to talk to people. 
finds out how you're supposed to act in public. He's learning that from his daddy. And whenever he's through, whenever daddy's through with all of that and they get back in the car, if his daddy has anything to say, it's always something good. So he's not learning how to be critical and how to be a hypocrite because daddy's not showing him that. And he goes to work on his bicycle. Sometimes his daddy helps him, but he lets the kid do it. Crawling under the car to change the oil. Sometimes it's a nuisance for a kid to crawl under there with you. They want to know what that is. And you look at him, he's got a big grease streak across his head. Watch what you're doing. And then they want to touch something to get oil all over them. And, but you know what? That's a good opportunity to say, well, here's the way this thing works. Now, they won't remember all that, but just the fact that you're talking to them and that you're taking time to show them things. It's kind of like sending somebody a card. I'd rather just, you know, if your birthday, is it your birthday? Here, here's a dollar. But to go to that drugstore, mother's there. I don't have my mother anymore, but my kids have one. So I went in there at the Walgreens, and I'm looking in there, and there were two other guys in there. We kind of got out of each other's way, and we were there, and here came another guy. We were all looking at the same cards. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, looks like we're all in trouble, doesn't it? Because <laughs> we're in trouble because there's 600 cards here, and they all read alike. You're like the rose and... <laughs> And the fragrance, and then, you know, well, amen to all of it. Well, the other day, back when that happened, the thought came to me. You know, it's not so much of what the card says, and your name is signed with all my love or something like that. It's the fact that it took you time to do it, and you had to be thoughtful about it because you read more than one card. The fact that you're putting some thought in it. Well, I think that's what it means when we teach our children. The little boy wants to go with his daddy. There's a little girl. They're just as much fun as little boys are. And she wants to go with daddy too. And daddy has a real good chance when he's with that little girl to talk about how good her mother is. And this little girl begins to realize, boy, my daddy loves my mother. Make sure you act like it at home. But uh, he talks about her. He upholds her. He views her in a high and lofty way, and so the little girl will too. He teaches her about right ways, and I don't want you to act like those little girls act because it seems to me like those little girls are not very secure. Maybe their daddy didn't care how they act, but I care about you. You're teaching. It's spending time talking about things that's going to stay in their minds as they grow up. You're not driving them away by abusive words. You're bringing them in. You're letting them know that they're important to you, that you care about them, that you have a respect for your children and for the sex that they are, boys and girls, and that you want them to understand that boys are going to be men, and you want to marry one that's a good one, and the girls are going to be mothers, and you want to marry one that loves you and all of that. A man can teach it. Of course, mom can teach too, but he says here, fathers. Nurture your children in the admonitions of the Lord and teach these kind of things, and he should. A third thing that men do is provide. I believe it's a man's job to provide for his family. I do. I think a man should provide. I think he should bring the money in and he should see to it that the bills are paid and that there's food on the table and that we make it through another month. I don't think you have to get married and go into debt so much that she now has to quit being a housewife and has to go get a job because you've got bills run way too much. You've overspent, you've overbought, you've overspeculated, you've just overdone it. That's not the will of God at all. That's why sometimes people really slow getting out. But you go into this thing, a man does, and he says, now... Right now, I'm single. I don't have to be thinking about anybody else's needs but mine. Now, if I marry this girl, her needs now are going to be my needs. I said that when I got married. I make her needs my needs. That's a Boy Scout, isn't it? He didn't do that at the altar. And he begins to realize that he's going to be responsible to buy her clothes, to feed her, to buy the food so she can fix it. 
He doesn't make a lot of money. He doesn't know how well he can do this yet. He didn't know how much he's going to be able to do. He would like for her and the children to have a lot of good things, but he might not be able to make enough right now. He might not be able to do that. But you know what? As I said earlier, money isn't what makes a home happy. There's families in poor countries that laugh a lot. They smile a lot. They don't have anything. I've heard of some that don't even have a bed to sleep on. They're happy. Oh, they're getting along good, and he makes $10 a week or $20 a week or whatever. They have enough to eat. You know what I think is important? It's for two people to stand together, thankful to God for what they do have, believe in God for what they need, and doing it joyfully together. Your kids learn that the value that you're putting on life is the unit, the home, the family, us, getting along. We have enough. We have beans and rice tonight. That's a pretty good meal if you put the right kind of sausage in there. But we just have beans and rice and some cornbread to go along with that. Anyway, you say, well, you know, this is all we have tonight, kids. But isn't it good that God has given us this? And your mom and I have and you hold hands and you pray. And we just give you thanks, Lord, for this food. Children begin to realize what's important is not what kind of food you eat, not how much money you got, but you got each other. And that means a whole lot when you grow up. Because a lot of boys that marry a little girl like that, her name is not Jimmy Gimme. She doesn't get up every morning with the ain't gots. My name is Jimmy Gimme, goes to bed with the wants and wakes up with the not gods or whatever he used to say about that thing. She's just not a spoiled little kid that's only happy when I got a credit card with some room on it. No, it's just the fact that we're just grateful for what we have. God will give us better. God will make it work for us. And the little bit we have now, we're thankful for it because God has promised that if we'll just do it his way, that he'll bless us. What a great thing to teach your children because that's a good way to teach them that provision we have enough to eat. Our bills are getting paid. We can't go do all the things that people go. I'm trying to save 4 or $5 a week so we can take a vacation. Now, we might not be able to go out here or go there, but we can take about four or five days off this fall, and we can go see Uncle Bill down in Tennessee and, and enjoy the, that scenery down there. And we do it together. We're going to do it as a family. We're all going together. We're not going to let basketball and baseball and football keep us from eating together at night either because so many American homes today, they never eat together anymore. They're all busy. She's in this. He's in that. He's got to go here. And everybody is busy running to this sport, running to this. We got, we got soccer. We got baseball, football. We got this, got, got this because we think that's really important. But what's really important is God. It's doing things the Bible way. That's what's important. And anything that interferes with that, dad should stand up and say, we're not going to do that. I remember one time when one of my children said, well, why can't I do this? Now, my immediate answer from my kickback out of my hard drive was, because I said so. I remember checking myself and saying, well, in my estimation, that's not a good place to go. I don't know that you should be with people like that who don't believe the way we believe about things, and you're apt to get in trouble. Plus, I've got to give an account for you to God. If I let you do something you shouldn't and something comes bad out of this, I'm accountable. So in my best judgment, I don't think you should do this, and I'm not going to let you do it. Okay. And it's all it was. Okay. It worked once anyway. <laughs> There's also the needs that children have. I mentioned that with their daddy. There's also needs that a wife has to provide for their needs. It's not always money. Sometimes it's just attention. They have needs, too, that a father only can meet. I'll tell you, boys, young men, we'll give you a chance at the end of this little service tonight to cancel out any hopes of marriage or any plans. Just forget all that. But <laughs> once you tie that knot, as we say it, once you involve yourself in marriage, you're locked into a whole lot of responsibility and a whole lot about how a lot of people do depends on you. Now, you got a chance to get out right now if you're not in. And if you're in, you better listen, pay attention. 
Secondly, tonight I want to talk about men and their wives. Men are supposed to rule, men are supposed to teach, men are supposed to provide. That's the general theme in the home that a man does. It's all important. Another role that a man has is to his wife. To his wife. He's supposed to relate to her as a Christian man is supposed to relate. And there are several things I want you to see about that. First Peter chapter 3. I don't know if it could be more important than the way he said it in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Three things are said here in this verse. Specifically about a man and his wife. Now, if you're married here tonight and you're both here, then I'm talking about you and her. Now, I knew you knew that, but just in case you weren't sure. Verse 7, likewise, you husbands. He took six verses to talk about the women. It'll take us six more sessions to deal with that. But verse 7, likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. It goes back to that again, doesn't it? giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Actually, there's four things said here. First one is dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Let me ask you a question. Does the Bible have any light on how a man should relate to his wife? Anything that he should do with regard to his wife, any way he should be, any attitude he should have towards his wife. One of the very best ones is in Ephesians 5, you don't have to turn to it, of how Christ loved the church. Remember that? How Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. In what way? Well, not only to redeem her, we can't redeem our wife, but he gave himself for her as well as to her because that's the whole focus of the Lord and redemption is the saving of his people. A godly man. Again, he's no longer can think only about himself, but now he's got, if he has children, he has children and a wife, he's got a lot of people responsible for. But he can never forget, he can never walk away from his responsibility. This woman I married is somebody that I prove unto God that I'm going to be unto her what Jesus was unto the church. Teach me thy ways, O Lord. I have to learn. You have to teach me about knowledge. I need to recognize my wife is not a man. She's not a big, strong person that should be outside doing a man's work. She's a woman. I don't want her to hurt herself because whatever. Sometimes she has to help, of course. But there are things a man ought to do, and I don't want my wife to have to do it. I want to do that myself because I want to have respect for her as a woman. Thank God she doesn't look like a man. Thank God women don't look like men. That would be terrible. But it says, secondly, that uh, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Honor here is a word which means value. You find that you also let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Well, here, the same word honor has to do with value. A man should attach a certain value to his wife. How would we know what kind of value to attach to our wife? Put your finger wherever you are and look in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 18 and 19. Those two chapters in the middle of your Bible. Proverbs 18 and 19. Honoring your wife is putting value on her because here's two things in two chapters, chapter 18 and verse 22. Here's two things it says about your wife, about a man who has found a wife. Whoso findeth a wife findeth what? A good thing and obtaineth favor from the Lord. Now, you young ladies in here who aren't married yet, praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm just having a good time with you. But let me ask you a question. Will you be this? Will the young man who marries you, will he find somebody that God has personally arranged just for you. Because if you do, he says, you have obtained what from the Lord? Favor. That's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. God raised you up, young man. You didn't know it. And he has for you, he has prepared a young lady somewhere, has no idea what's going on, and she won't until the day it happens, but he'll bring her to you 
He will cause you to love her. He calls her to love him. And you will both know that there's something here. And she will fit into your life like something that nobody else could. She's not foolish. She's not racist. She's prudent. She's thoughtful. Has a meek and quiet spirit. That's hard to find too. 1 Peter 3. And she becomes a kind of a woman that God knows makes your home and your headship the way it should be. It's easier to do it with this kind of woman. She is sent to you by the Lord. He has obtained favor from the Lord. And look at chapter 19 and verse 14, the next page over. House and riches are the inheritance of fathers and a prudent wife, a thoughtful, discerning, careful, cautious, thinking woman is from the Lord. Are you one like that? All you ladies that are like that, hold up your hand. There you go. One, two. All of you that aren't, hold your hand up. All of you that don't know, put them straight out. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know that you want to be. Wouldn't it be nice to know that when your day comes, if it comes, if it comes, you are exactly what somebody needed in every way you're made, all the features about you. It's perfect for somebody, a perfect match. But you didn't go out here on the streets and run through the world and find some cute, frisky little something or some cool tattooed something. He's so cool. All it would take would be a couple of years married, either of them, and wish you were out. That's not peace and joy at all. That's lust gone crazy. It's no peace in it, no future in it. If you ever marry, any of you all, marry in the church. Amen? Marry somebody who's a Christian who, as a Christian, believes like you do. Because if you don't, you're asking for a lot of trouble. It shouldn't be like that. But it says in verse 14 again that you obtain favor from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. I believe, fathers, that's what we pray. When we pray for our little girls, that's what we pray, that we'll have some role in their life to help make them like that. Maybe just walking by their little room where they're not in there and laying your head on their pillow. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, give light to me to be sensitive to the needs of my daughter, that I may contribute to her well-being as she grows up so that she will be what you want and make somebody very happy in her life. And to your son, that he will be the kind of man that will respect women and love whom you give him. He'll be a good provider and that he will stand in front of his house in a way that will cause grace to flow into his house all the days of his life and his children. I pray that you'll make that my children that way. Wouldn't that be good? But isn't that something that we can do as men? Amen. And the third thing, if you'll go back to 1 Peter 3 again, a serious part, not only about being heirs together, the grace of life, but if you are heirs together, if man and woman together become heirs, the inheritors of life together, then it has to stay together. It can't just be the man doing it or the woman. It's both. Now, if this doesn't happen in a home, listen to me, in verse 7, if this is not happening, then what can happen at the very end of that verse? Your prayers can be hindered. Is that right? Okay, now listen. No matter how much a man knows, he might be a preacher, might be a leader, might be a scholar, whatever he is, if he is not doing certain things biblically with his wife that he should be doing, and he is not taking care of business, as they say, at home and making wrongs right and fixing broke things. If he's not in the process of doing that, if he is not in the process of seeing his wife as somebody of honor, that he puts a lot of value on, God gave me a good one when he gave me one. He says that. I can say tonight, he gave me a good one. I can't speak for nobody else. I can speak for me. He gave me a good one. Better than I deserve. And so a man begins to recognize that if he doesn't and he regards her as the old lady 
or he doesn't really care how she feels about things or what if she's weary, tired or whatever, and he doesn't care and he just kind of treats her like, well, you know, after 30 years of marriage and who cares? Do you realize tonight that his prayer, I don't care how much his prayer life is and how much scripture he knows, his prayers are hindered. That's not the man you want to call and pray for you because chances are it won't work. Chances are it won't work. All because a man has lost sight of who his wife is and how he is accountable to God as to how he relates to her. If he doesn't and he won't, his prayers can be hindered. That child who needs your prayer, that somebody in the church who needs your prayer, your prayers probably, possibly won't work. They can be hindered, a hindrance. Another thing a man must do about how he relates to his wife, I mentioned love a while ago, the way Christ loved the church. Love, by definition, is commitment. A man must commit himself to his wife's well-being, and she must know that he's committed to her. And I guarantee you, any woman that's been married very long at all knows whether or not her husband really loves her. But how he relates to her. Whether or not he's considerate, thoughtful, sensitive. I don't mean you don't have a day in which you messed up, but I mean she knows if he loves her or not. She knows if she's just somebody in the house that lives with him and cooks his supper and sleeps with him, or if he is somebody that he really cares about, thinks about a lot, and wants to spend time with. Love covers a multitude of sins. It keeps a lot of things that shouldn't happen that want to happen from happening. Love. A woman, I don't think, should ever have to ask her husband, do you love me? She ought to know that he does, not only because he tells her, but because he acts like it. Amen. Make sure you marry one like that. Or, just leave it alone. Second thing about that, he's not to be bitter against her. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19 says, Do not be embittered against your wives. How do you embitter or make bitter a wife? How do you do that? Well, the word bitter, by definition, I looked up in the dictionary, the word bitter means exhibiting intense animosity. Intense animosity. The way you talk, the way you look at her, the way you answer her, the way you regard what she says or something, or your indifference to what she's saying to you. It can only make her realize that you don't care a thing about me. You don't care what's going on. All you care about yourself. And, you just, and the bitterness. Bitterness begins to seethe. Harshly reproachful, the dictionary says. Marked by cynicism and rancor, intensely unpleasant, especially in coldness or rawness. A man no longer loves his wife the way he should when he's always griping about what she's doing or not doing, when he's always complaining about her, always critical about her, especially in public, like the man did his boy. When he does that to his wife, he embitters her. That's why in public she takes liberties around the girls of talking about her husband. She should never do that. But a lot of them do because they got this ax to grind. They got to get this off their chest. Somebody needs to hear me about this. This is not right. So she's bitter. And he just complains about, look at you. When's the last time, you know, man, you're getting a little bit uh, around the side there, aren't you? And she said, I ain't alone. She shouldn't have said that, but now she doesn't care what he thinks either. Well, I don't care where you go. Go on. No, just go away. We've been doing well without you for the last five years anyway. Love is gone. You know what happens to kids that grow up in, in that? I've been there. I have been there. I have grown up in the middle of that pile. You know what kids think? They don't think good. Here's a kid that loves mom. Here's a kid that loves dad. He wishes it wasn't like it is, and he hears what he says about his mother. He hears what she says about his daddy, and there's a bit of confusion that comes out of this. 
I've been there. You wish it was better. You go to other kids' homes and their parents talk and they're happy. You think, wow, they actually talk to each other. Civil. Boy, daddy, he's always finding faults, picky, indifferent. Food's never good. House never right. Everything is just upside down. What have you been doing all day? I asked my wife that one time, but not rudely. I said, so what have you been doing all day? She said, reading movie magazines and eating candy bars. <laughs> that was smart. <laughs> Another thing a woman needs is to feel needed and accepted by her husband. She needs to feel needed. If she is a thing of honor, then she needs to know that when she has something to say that he'll listen to her. Now, he may have other things on his mind. It may not look like he is, and you may have to say, are you listening? I mean, I think the Lord showed me something. I'm going to share it with you. He doesn't treat her like, how could you know anything? I mean, I'm the man of the house. All revelation comes to me. See, he doesn't say that because he's learned through the teaching that, that is what works. So, he holds on. He begins to let her express herself, talk to him. He listens. He places a certain amount of value on what she is saying because he wants her to know, you know, I like what you said. I've made a lot of sermons. She knows it, but I've had a lot of either titles or parts to a sermon that just some talk that we have had. Now, I don't want her to get cranked up now and say, I'm going to preach me a sermon too. I'll give him all my points for next week. Is that what I mean? But a lot of times she says things, and when you get away from her, you're thinking, you know what? That's really good. I never thought of it like that, and I'm a man. But it just goes to show you that when we got married, what God gave us wasn't some dummy. We can marry wise women. And she needs to know that she's needed and accepted by her husband. The second thing is that she needs to be respected in public before him and her children. She needs to know that her husband regards her and who she is high enough that he will never speak wrongly about her in public. I don't mean tease. I think sometimes we tease too much. I do, but... Teasing can be with a smile on your face. But I think he wants to make sure that when he speaks, she wants him to respect her in public and not talk about her in public or not point her out in public as something to laugh at. Some women are very sensitive to that, and they should be because nobody likes to be the laughing stock. A good compliment from her husband helps a whole lot. She's trying hard to lose weight or she's trying hard to cook a good meal or trying real hard to do something that she knows you'll like and she's doing it so she wants to please you. And a good compliment helps. How many times have we sat down to eat a meal that I know it took quite a while for your wife to make and you get through, you know, and you get up and walk away, never said boo. I, I was caught one time doing that out of a thousand. Later conversation, not that time, says, uh, well, did you like supper tonight? Yeah, yeah, it was good. So can you just say that when we eat? Well, you mean like it was good? See, I'm real sensitive. It was good? Yeah, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Next time it's good. No. <laughs> you see, the sound of the voice. <laughs> I was telling myself, but the sound of the voice or the way you say it tells her how you really felt about it. If you said, okay, it was good. She just say, forget it. But if you say, you know, that was good. She says, thank you. At least all this work I went in there, I did for you. And all I wanted was to say, just a moment, just a little comment said, that was really good. And man, you do that once, they're going to work harder at it next time until you're going to wind up saying, that is good. <laughs> that is really good, you know. A man needs to know that a wife needs him to understand her place in the home. The chores, the routines, especially with children. With how many times a day do you have to, if they're little, change a diaper, get a drink, rub a knee, pray for a child, put a Band-Aid somewhere. And all the talk, and all her conversation is baby talk, because that's what babies understand. Well, they do. All this that she has to do and this is going on or that. She may not really feel good that day, but she's got this to do because nobody else is going to do it. I tell you what, boys, when a man walks out of the house with his lunch pail, 
When a man gets up in the morning and all that racket, when he walks out of the house, hey, he's free. Man, he's free. He can go to McDonald's and get him a big McMuffin or down to the local sausage house and get him one of them. He can drive to work, get him a paper, read noontime. He goes, gets him something to eat, reads his paper. He comes home. He just worked all day. I know he works hard. But he would rather do that than be where she is. With all the things that the mother has to go through, plus trying to do this, plus the supper's ready to go. I tell you, 4 o'clock in the afternoon when you get home from work is no time to act romantic. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Because a thoughtful man has to recognize, boy, she's had her hands full today. You got a kid that doesn't feel good, has had a fever, she had to pray over that, and one of them fell down, skinned his knee, and listen here, couldn't take a nap, and somebody knocked on the door during the nap and woke him up, and then, uh, you know, I was supposed to get food out to thaw, and it didn't get out in time, and now it can be real tense. A man can relieve that tension, but just said, hey, this is okay. It's no big deal. I know you've had it rough today. I wouldn't want to trade places with you, even as tough as you are, but I understand that uh, your confinement, and it is. I know how you must probably feel. I'm going to help you clean the house. I'm going to stay home a while whenever and help you get some things caught up around here. You think that would help? You think she would say, wow. Maybe you would. I think she would. Another thing that a man needs to realize is women get this fever every now and then. Only a man can help deliver them from this fever. It's called cabin fever. Which they've been in a house talking baby talk for five days in a row, changing diapers and getting drinks and rubbing knees and all that. Sometimes daddy comes home and says, we're going out to eat tonight. And she goes, really? Yeah. She gets to go fix up. She gets to go take her house dress off and go home and put her eating out one night a week dress on. And they're going to go someplace and eat. She doesn't care where it is, as long as it's not the Big Mac. But a nice set-down restaurant, and he's doing this because, well, this is the way he wants to honor her. I know you're working hard. I know you're doing a lot of things that nobody else can do, and I know it's not easy, but you're a woman. You're made this way. You can handle it, but I want to keep you around as long as I can. And if you say, well, we can't afford to go out and eat, well, then buy a pound of hamburger and make some hamburgers. If you don't have a grill, put them on a skillet. Just something that's not she has to spend all day cooking. Doesn't take a lot of money to do this. And if you need a little extra money at the end of the week, quit spending money on things you don't need through the week and save it. And at the end of the week, you can do something you don't normally always do. Another thing a woman needs from a man, she needs to have romantic love for his wife. Every woman wants to be loved, genuinely loved. Not because she's pretty still, not because she still has that figure she used to have, but she still has the heart she's always had. And he married her not because of her body or her face, but because of what she is in her heart. And romantic love doesn't always have to be sex. It can be just thoughtful words, talking, just loving each other, the look, the smile, the hug. If it leads to the bedroom, that's fine, because that's all right. God made it that way, and that's the way it should be. She needs to know that everything is genuine, that it's not out-of-control lust, it's not some obsession with my woman, but it's just a, a caring relationship where you want to love your wife. And I can say this, pray that if you do marry, you'll never want to love anybody else like you love your wife, and nobody else can love you like your wife. Because not only does a woman need to be loved, but she needs to love somebody. Because she's made that way also. And you have to be able to receive the love that she gives you and the effort that she puts in it. We're talking about a happy home, the kind of home that ought to be. And all of this begins with a man. This is how I think a man should treat his wife. It's quite a package, quite a responsibility. I want to close with you turning to 1 Corinthians 7. A man takes his life, his time, his plans, shares them with his wife and his family. They're no longer his own but he's sharing this with others. He is obligated to other people now, and he has obligations 
to those people to do things that they need done. It's daddy's role. It's a father's place. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 32 and 33. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried, now are y'all listening? Especially you unmarried girls and boys, young men, young women. This is for you. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord. Say amen. Good. How he may please the Lord. But, well, he that is married cares for the things that are of the world. How he pleases his wife. It's not the way it's to be read, is it? He that is married cares for the things of the world how he may please his wife. They do take away his time from other things that he could be doing if he wasn't married. Let me read it from another translation. This is the Williams New Testament. It says, and I would have you free from worldly anxiety. An unmarried man concerns himself with the Lord's business, how he shall please the Lord. But a married man concerns himself with the business of the world, how he shall please his wife. And if you're still there, verse 34 is for the girls. You're really better off if you're not married. As far as fully and completely devoting your time and energy to the Lord's service. But if you're married to another woman, you can't devote it all to him because he holds you responsible to include her in your life and your devotion and so forth. Amen? Now, how many of you men are Abrahams? I know Abraham. God said, I know him. I know him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring on him all that he has promised him. May that be in our homes. And you young men that are either just married or going to get married one of these days, I'm sure you probably will. Just remember, you're stepping into a different level of life than you are living right now. It isn't easy. The adjustment is not simple. Look at the people that have been married for quite a while and see how loose and slack things have gotten. It can happen to you. Unless you're one of those that says, no, put my heart and soul, I'm not going to marry anybody that I don't want to be really in love with the rest of my life. Amen. Close your Bibles. God is good. You're free to go. God bless you all.